We'll hear argument next in 05-1589, Davenport versus Washington Education Association, and 05-1657, Consolidated Washington versus Washington Education Association. General McKenna. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Washington law authorizes union security agreements, which permit unions to enter into collective bargaining agreements that require non-member employees to pay an agency shop fee or lose their job. The union's authority to collect these compelled fees is based solely on statute and is subject to statutory conditions. Section 760, as adopted by Washington voters in 1992, requires unions to obtain the affirmative consent from non-members before their fees may be used to influence an election or operate a political committee. 760 serves the state's interest in election integrity by means of ensuring that union election activity is funded by voluntary contributions, just like every other organization that seeks political funds. 760 is a valid condition on the union's statutory authority and does not violate the union's First Amendment rights. 760 serves the state's interests specified in the adopted initiative. Which, were, which are found at uh, Petition Appendix 138A, codified as RCW 42.17.620. Three interests in election integrity are stated, or three means of serving that interest in election integrity are stated in this portion, uh, the intent portion of the statute. First, to ensure that individuals have a fair and equal opportunity to influence elections. Second, to reduce the influence of large organizational contributors. Third, to restore public trust in the election process. The Washington Supreme Court, Petition Appendix 22A, 23A, agreed that the intent of Initiative 134 was to protect the integrity of the election process from the perception that individuals have an insignificant role to play. I'm surprised that that's the purpose. I would have thought its primary purpose would be to spare individuals the necessity of uh, supporting uh, uh, causes that they don't support? Was there no First Amendment interest? Justice Scalia, I I refer to... Early in election law interest? Actually, Justice Scalia, we believe Section Section 760 accomplishes both purposes. The overall intent of the initiative was, as I stated, found by the State Supreme Court, but clearly from the plain language of Section 760... The State Supreme Court was wrong. I mean, why do you believe it on this? You don't believe it on everything else. We, we believe You're appealing from it, aren't you? Well, we believe that the integrity of the election, the election process, Justice Scalia, is in fact served by helping ensure that individuals make voluntary contributions. We think that, in fact, it does help the integrity of the election process. Well, how can the State Supreme Court determine what is the, the purpose, the intent of a ballot initiative? I'm not certain, Your, Your Honor. They referred to the — A lot of people voted for it. Right. They, they, was the State Supreme Court in a position yes. to determine why they voted for it? They simply hold, Your Honor, in their opinion that this is what the voters intended. How did and they know that? Yeah, I don't well, know how they, they know, Your Honor. So if that's what they intended, then how can a State say, well, it's the union's money. We, we, we don't want you to spend this little bit of your money to contribute in a campaign. But uh, if the local swimming team — uh, wants to, you know, or, or the bar association or the corporation, if they want to spend uh, money that uh, people uh, have given them for totally other purposes, the compulsory bar association, well, they can do that. It's just the labor unions that can't spend the money that uh, these uh, people forced to belong. Uh, uh, you know, they have to object affirmatively, but all the other similar organizations, they can't. 
Your Honor, beginning with the Railway Labor Act cases and continuing up through the public school teacher cases of Boot and Hudson, this Court has recognized that compelling employees to pay fees uh, must be balanced against the need to protect them from well, — Now you're talking about this other purpose. Yeah. But, but that other purpose, uh, which was rather interesting, I take it that's one of the main points on the other side, the other purpose has nothing to do with this case. If Washington wanted to have a similar statute where it was worried about protecting the interests of the uh, compelled member, the compelled payor, fine, fine. That would be a different case. That isn't this case. Your this Honor, case, they couldn't care less about that. Actually, Your Honor, I think the plain language of 760 makes it clear that the authors of the initiative intended to protect individual interests. There, there is no meaningful distinction between the, uh, the use of individuals in, 760, in Section 760 than there is in the, HUD, in the Hudson statute, for example. The Hudson statute, the Illinois statute at issue in, in Hudson, also required non-members to opt in in order to make not just political contributions, but any contributions. But the court found, this court found no problem with Hudson or with it's the Illinois statute. They didn't have a state Supreme Court interpreting the statute, which is just as you started off saying it was, which is, has nothing to do with the rights of the non-member, zero. It has to do with the appearance of fairness in the election. Your Honor, with due respect, that was the legal conclusion of the Washington Supreme Court. It was not a construction of a statute. It was a legal conclusion based on their reading or, or divining of voter intent. But this Court is not bound by such an assessment. Well, what I, I wanted to ask about that. Suppose Washington says that as a matter of Washington law, we are bound by our interpretation of purpose, and we interpret the statute uh, according to that purpose. Uh, you used the word plain language a few minutes ago. Yes, uh, are we free to disregard that and say, well, oh, well, we're just going to follow the no, plain language? No. Like the case we, was, was argued just the first case this morning. Your, Your Honor, as Chief Justice Roberts mentioned in the last case you heard this morning, first look to the plain language, as the Solicitor General has pointed out in well, numerous Well, but that's a federal, federal statute, and, and, but that, that, this is a state statute. Suppose the state court says, we're interested in purpose as we decided, and you must, as a matter of state law, interpret the statute according to the purpose as we've found it. I, Aren't I, we bound by that? I don't believe you are bound by the, that, what's, Your Honor. For what's example, your authority in Wisconsin, for that? Wisconsin v. Mitchell, Your Honor. In that case, the Wisconsin Supreme Court was found by this Court not to have constructed the statute, but to have made an assessment of its practical effects. And this Court found it was not bound. Similarly, in Keller, a case more directly relevant to this case, the State Supreme Court found that the Bar Association of California is a governmental uh, agency, and this Court declined to follow uh, the State Supreme Court of California. And well, that was because the, the, the characterization had a federal consequence. Your Honor, I simply observe that this Court was, did not find it was bound by the California Supreme Court's finding that the Bar Association is a government agency, nor did it find in Wisconsin v. Mitchell that it was bound by the Wisconsin Supreme Court in regards to its assessment of the practical effects of the Wisconsin statute at issue there. Do they get their money back the, if, if uh, uh, this is upheld and, and I'm an agency member, I hate the union, can't stand it, gave them the $20 for this, and they spent it on a political candidate I hate even more, uh, and you win? Do I get my $20 back, or can the union just spend my $20 on something else? Your Honor, if, if, if it is a 
760 expense, they should get the money back. If it is a, a, a non-760 expense, which is not germane, then they would opt out at that. They would have to opt out to get that kind of money back. Unless Your Honor is referring to what happens on, on uh, if the statute is upheld, what happens when we go back and have a, a further trial on the issues in this case. I'm not sure which scenario you were envisioning, but in I'm, try, I'm trying to get at the question, is this the union's money or is this the, Your Honor, the workers, uh, is the, the teacher's money? Your Honor, it is not. Does the, he get it, his money back? Yeah, Your Honor, the 760 back. money, excuse me. Your Honor, the 760 money is not the union's money until they have satisfied the conditions laid out by statute, in this case, Section 760. Possession of the fees does not entitle the WEA or any union to use those fees to influence an election or operate a political committee until after they have satisfied the condition on that collection, the condition being, in this case, they obtain affirmative authorization. This Court held in Phillips and in Brown that, in analogizing to the IOLTA money, that non-members own the fees until the statutory conditions are satisfied. Let, let, let's assume that it makes a difference whether the purpose of the statute was at least in part to protect the First Amendment rights of the non-union members uh, or whether, as the Washington Supreme Court seemed to say, at least they said its principal purpose was to protect uh, the voting process. Uh, elsewhere in its opinion, however, the Washington Supreme Court says, where a statute is ambiguous and this Court is able to construe it in a manner which renders it constitutional, the Court is obliged to do so, which sounds to me like good law. Wouldn't that apply to its uh, intuition as to what the intent of the people who enacted this uh, statute were? Yes, sir. Wouldn't, wouldn't the Washington Supreme Court be obliged to intuit that purpose which would make it constitutional rather than unconstitutional? Yes, Your Honor, it would yes, if, sir. in fact, Section 760 were ambiguous. It is, however, not ambiguous. It is plain on its face. And, in fact, the, the Supreme Court did not state that any term or phrase in Section 760 is ambiguous. Instead, they referred to their divination of voter intent. And I, I, I believe, Your Honor, well, do you, do you uh, uh, agree with the Court's conclusion that uh, constitutionality is at issue here? The constitutionality of the statute with regard to the union's First Amendment rights is not at issue here, no, Your Honor, no. Isn't it your position that this statute is constitutional either way you interpret it? Yes, Your Honor, it is. Your Honor, I would like to make the further point that, and I think this is a fairly obvious point, but we think that since under your decisions the state can prohibit a union from collecting an agency fee altogether, that it, that it is reasonable for the state to impose a condition on that collection which falls, falls far short of actually prohibiting it. We further point out that in the Hudson case, the Illinois statute at issue was effectively an opt-in statute, a statute under which no amount that was not germane could be collected in advance, unlike the more generous Washington State statute, which allows the union, permits the union to collect a fee in an amount equal to dues or would permit it to collect a fee which would have been reduced in advance to reflect non-germane or reduced just to reflect 760 expenses. It seems to us that it is within the power of the state to establish such a condition in the interest of election integrity by means of protecting the First Amendment interests of the non-members, and we think the statute does that very well without imposing, in, in fact, a substantial administrative burden on the, uh, on the union in this case, or unions in general. 
Uh, for example, the, uh, the uh, way that the WEA or any union could comply with Section 760 would be to simply place an additional form in the Hudson packet they send out. Now, recognizing that the Hudson packet is about this thick, that it is received by the teachers in September, the busiest month of the year for teachers, and that uh, there is no form currently provided in that packet whatsoever to allow people to opt out, but rather uh, are a, a statement that you must send a letter to the union to opt out. We think it's quite easy, and we look to the WEA PAC. Uh, for instruction on what they could do. That now, because the WEA has, has chosen to form a PAC and is required to solicit members and non-members, if they choose, in order to contribute to that PAC, they do a very good job of soliciting members. They include a very convenient form encouraging people to check off and send their dues into the PAC to support candidate elections. They provide no such form uh, for the opt-out process, but it would be easy for them to do so. Uh, the burden imposed on them is not great administratively, as they suggest, any more than the burden on the other teachers' unions in Abood or in Hudson, because it can easily be met uh, through these, uh, these simple means. If there are no further questions, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, General. General Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the statute at issue here imposes only a narrow limitation on the union's use of agency fees, namely by requiring the affirmative assent of the non-members before the union may use those funds for non-germane political expenditures. The statute does not limit the union's ability to spend its own money on political causes, and every avenue that is available to any other organization in the state to solicit contributions from non-members remains available to the union. The court below nonetheless struck the statute down only by treating the workers' minimum constitutional rights as a constitutional ceiling as well as a floor. In the process, the court below rigidly constitutionalized an area of labor law in which the states and the federal government have, at least since the Lochner era, enjoyed substantial discretion to make labor policy. We would request the Court reverse the decision below, but also reverse and restore room for play in the joints in this area of labor law. I think the starting problem with the Court's analysis below is that the rights that are, that are at issue in this area principally are the rights of the individual workers. This Court has recognized that the agency shop itself raises significant First Amendment issues and First Amendment impingements, and so the forced extraction of fees is justified only to the extent that it can be justified by the government's interest in maintaining labor peace or in avoiding free ridership. So as a minimum constitutional matter, the workers have to have an opt-out right. The question is whether the states can go further and either do an opt-in regime or do what was at issue in the Hudson case and not even allow the union to collect the non-germane funds in the first place from non-members. Mr. Clement, do you think if we reversed, as you suggest, and the State Supreme Court said, well, I guess we were wrong under the First Amendment, but we just realized our State Constitution requires the same result, would that judgment stand, do you think? 
I, I think it might well. I mean, I think there might be an argument at that point that somehow the Federal Constitution requires more than an opt-out right. Certainly some of the amici have made that argument. The Davenport petitioners have made that argument. And I suppose you could, at that point, confront a second petition in this case. But at least as a starting matter, I think that's an option that's available to the Washington Supreme but, Court. But Washington, at a minimum, I would assume that the Washington Supreme Court would not have constitutional avoidance as a crutch in order to reach that, reach that conclusion, because there is no constitutional issue here under your view. Right, though, I mean, I, I don't mean to be able to constrain the Washington Supreme Court's ability to find a state constitutional problem no. that it would then think there's a need to Are the members of no, no. the Washington if we Supreme say Court elected, do we know that? Are they elected? They are elected. They are elected. So uh, it's easier to blame it on us than it is uh, for them to say, we hold as a matter of Washington law that this can't be done. And, uh, and we disallow what the people have voted for. That, it'll be a harder, a harder call, don't you think? It might be a harder call, Justice Scalia. I seem to recall a reference that might have actually been in the Court of Appeals opinion rather than the State Supreme Court opinion that, as a general matter, the Washington courts have not construed their First Amendment, uh, state constituent First Amendment to be radically different than the, than the Federal Constitution. So I would imagine there's going to be some state law that may limit their ability to do that. I'm certainly not an expert on the, on the Washington state law of the, uh, of the First Amendment. Well, if this it money is, is the non-union members' money, and if the, an opt-out, uh, I'm sorry, an opt-in scheme is not much of a burden on the unions, why should the First Amendment permit anything other than an opt-in scheme? Well, Justice Alito, it's a fair question. As I say, it's a question that's, that's certainly raised by the Davenport petitioners. I think there's an answer to it, and I'll get, get to it in a minute, but I would say, in, in fairness, some of the, one of the anomalies of this case is that in many respects, I think that's a more difficult constitutional question than the one that the Washington Supreme Court answered adversely to petitioners in this case. I think if I can sketch an answer to why it is that the opt-out is the constitutional minimum and there isn't, as a matter of constitutional law, required to be an opt-in I think it goes back to what the Court has construed as the relevant First Amendment interest here. And the Court has seemingly construed the relevant First Amendment interest here in not having a compelled extraction. And as part and parcel of the constitutional violation, it seems to have assumed there's a need for a stated objection. And I think that's where you get the opt-out right. And so if you put it in the analogy of an analogous compelled speech context, like Woolley against Maynard and the New Hampshire license plate, in that context, Part and parcel of the violation is the objection to having live free or die on your license plate, and the Court hasn't construed the compelled speech there to be that everybody has a compelled speech violation because they're presumptively forced to have the license plate on the back of their car. And so I think that — The union can make it as difficult as it wants for somebody to uh, to opt out. They can send a packet that's this thick and not provide a form. I wouldn't think so, Justice Alito, and I think that there are two separate questions, I would say. One is, what is an adequate set of procedures and protections for exercising the opt-out right? And then a separate question would be, do you actually have to go all the way to an opt-in right? And I think there there may well be many cases where the Hudson notice that's provided doesn't provide a sufficient constitutional opportunity. I mean, you have in a case like this a 100-page packet I'm told, that has no, ref- no form in it that you're supposed to return to opt out. You basically have to go to the third page, find the address of the president of the union, and then send in a letter. 
And I think it's instructive if you look in the Joint Appendix, I think it's at page Joint Appendix 45, you have the form that's available to union members to opt in to PAC contributions and have payroll deductions made for the PAC contributions. The union certainly makes it much easier to opt in to PAC contributions than it makes it to opt out vis-a-vis the Hudson Act. Is it relevant, General Clement, that the legislature didn't seem to be, or the ballot initiative didn't seem to be focused at all on uh, beefing up the rights of the non-member of the union? It seemed to be concerned with the integrity of the election process because they left the same old Hudson in place for uh, union non-germane spending that didn't have to do with elections. That's absolutely right, Justice Ginsburg. And I think the way we look at it is that this whole debate about the purpose of the provision is a little bit of a red herring because at the bottom, at the end of the day, it's clearly a hybrid. It is, if you look at the text, it's hard to understand how it does not have at least the effect of protecting workers. On the other hand, you're absolutely right that it doesn't address the entirety of germane, of non-germane expenses. It addresses a subset that have the most direct impact on the election process. Or even non-germane political expenses. Th- that's true. That's yeah. true. I mean, for example, a non-germane lobbying expense, which you might consider to be political in some broad sense, is not covered by the opt-in and remains subject to the Hudson opt-out right. But I don't think that there is certainly anything problematic about that. It's not like the interest in protecting electoral integrity is some sort of forbidden government interest that makes this a suspicious piece of legislation. And I think at the end, if you, again, put the the text of the relevant provision together with the overall purpose, it's clear that it's trying to protect the rights of workers, but it's doing so in service of a broader intent of improving electoral integrity. And if I could suggest where maybe the Washington Supreme Court went awry in its analysis, it focused almost exclusively on the three stated purposes that were included in the text of Initiative 134, which were all focused more on electoral integrity. That's not surprising, because there were 36 sections in Initiative 134 that dealt with the whole manner of different campaign finance initiatives. Before this initiative was passed by the voters of Washington, there weren't any campaign contribution limits in the state of Washington. So this initiative is doing a lot more work just besides Section 760. I think 760 isn't unrelated to those broader purposes because it does make sure that the contributions of the workers here are voluntary. And I think that is certainly something that's very similar to what federal law accomplishes through the separate segregated fund requirements. If I could make just one note about the fact that this targets unions and not other entities, I think two points are relevant. The first is that argument was very clearly waived. And if you look at footnote 6 of the Washington Supreme Court opinion, which is at 25A of the, of the state's petition appendix, it's clear that any argument about the dis, uh, disparate treatment of unions versus corporations or other entities was not before that court. Well, are, are there any other such entities that are given the power by the state to collect money from people against their will? You've anticipated my second point, Uh, which is the power that's being — I mean, it's no accident that they targeted this particular power or this particular issue, because it has always been understood to be an anomaly in this area, that the unions have a right to effectively take a claim on the paycheck of people who are non-members of the union. These are individuals who have already opted out of union membership. And that is a sufficient anomaly and sufficiently unlike any other context that I think there's nothing that prevents the State of Washington from targeting that problem and that problem alone, if there are no further questions. 
Thank you. Thank you, General. Uh, Mr. West. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Our submission that Section 760 unconstitutionally burdens the Union's First Amendment right to engage in political advocacy rests on three points. One, the statute before the Court is a campaign finance law that was enacted for the purpose of protecting the public's interest in the integrity of the electoral process. Two, it is a content-based restriction on speech, which cannot be justified by the State's authority to limit agency fees in the first place. Three, the statute does not serve a compelling State interest, both because it is overbroad in restricting, restricting speech on ballot propositions and because it's under-inclusive in regulating the campaign speech of unions but not of other comparably situated entities. Are the First Amendment rights of the union members or, or, or of the workers who are non-union members relevant? Uh, the First I mean, Amendment you, you, rights. You begin by talking about the First Amendment, but you, uh, you proceed as if there are no First Amendment rights of, of, of workers involved at all? The, the, the non-member employees certainly have a First Amendment right not to be compelled to uh, finance, help finance uh, political, ideological, and other non-germane expenditures over their objection. And that right is fully protected independently of 760 by the uh, Hudson process. Uh, and as the Washington Supreme Court held, with, when there is the availability of a ready means for opting out of uh, that participation in, in uh, financing those causes, uh, there is no compelled speech. And this is what the, what the First Amendment uh, gives to the, the non-member fee well, payers. I take it states have uh, considerable discretion in determining how to protect federal constitutional rights. The states... And ab absent uh, some direction that we have to consider this as only being uh, for, uh, for uh, purposes of election transparency, it, it, it seems to me that Washington acted quite properly in saying we will use this mechanism in order to protect our workers' First Amendment constitutional right. Well, what the state is pr protecting, Justice Kennedy, is not the First Amendment right itself, which by definition is protected through the Hudson process. Well, what why can't the state protect it more? If well, the fact that Hudson the, the would state, be adequate, uh, it, it, from that it does not follow that the state is not protecting the The right. state can certainly protect the interest that is protected by the First Amendment right more to a, or to a greater degree. But if it does so, it can only do so if it does not infringe on other uh, constitutional rights. And if it does, then the question is, whether the state's regulation that infringes on other constitutional rights, in this case the union's First Amendment right of political advocacy, whether that infringement is justified by a compelling state interest. And in your claim, as I take it, that there's an infringement with the union's right of political advocacy uh, is uh, that, in effect, the, the scheme restricts the union's use of its own funds. The, the scheme restricts the, the use of funds that uh, are, are properly collected from agency fee payers right. by you, the union. And you, would, you agree that the union uh, could segregate these funds as opposed to commingling them 
uh, and that would cure, uh, that would, in effect, answer your, your constitutional objection? Well, it wouldn't, because then the question is, what do you do after you've seg- segregated them? If the statute — Well, it's clear from the statute that, that, that what you would do would be uh, leave them subject to uh, the, the opt-in determination. Uh, but all other funds, i.e., the funds that you are constitutionally entitled to protect, would be unencumbered. Uh, certainly, Justice Souter, but then the question is, for those fee payers, and certainly there are going to be some out of three or 4,000 who do not give affirmative authorization, then what do you do with their funds? And the, the — Do you think that would create an, an independent constitutional problem, uh, assuming that you did segregate the funds? The, Justice Souter — that, that would create a, an issue. You know, what if they say nothing? Maybe, maybe the statute does not deal adequately with that, but does that raise a, a, a constitutional problem that, in effect, uh, would, would, be, would be of equal parity Justice, with the one that is, that is being raised on behalf of the, uh, the, the, the dissenting workers? Justice Souter, the reason it raises a constitutional problem is because of the content discrimination issue. What the state is saying uh, is that you have a right to collect an agency fee that is the full equivalent of union dues. But if you choose to spend any money from your treasury for electoral advocacy, you may, you may spend whatever you want from your treasury for, for legislative lobbying, for public relations, for all kinds of other uh, issues, uh, forms of speech that are not chargeable to objectors. But if you choose to spend any for one particular type of speech, namely electoral advocacy, then you must segregate and refund a portion of the fee to to the fee. Under under the federal law, you can't even have this opt-in system. You have to have a separate organization, as I understand, for the election. So there would be no no possibility that the non-member of the union, that funds would go to election financing. Certainly, Justice Ginsburg. That's much harder on the union, I would think. Well, it is much harder on the union in that respect, but not in the respect that's critical here, and that is the federal law as well as the the laws of all the other states who have have required uh, separate segregated funds limit that requirement to candidate elections. The, The reason this statute is unconstitutional, the reason it does not uh, 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 it consists of a, a compelling — does it not provide a compelling governmental interest in regulating the elections is because it goes far beyond the permissible realm of regulating expenditures on candidate elections and prohibits the union, without affirmative authorization, from spending its funds for ballot propositions. No, and but you're, you're, you're back to its funds again. Whether uh, and you're saying, first, uh, you, you, you said, well, segregating the funds does not answer the problem. Uh, and, and I thought the reason it didn't answer the problem was uh, that, the, that, it was, that the purposes of the, uh, of the Act were under-inclusive. Yeah. Uh, and now you're, you're responding to Justice Ginsburg by going back to making the assumption that the segregated funds would be the union's funds. Uh, Justice Souter, the, if they're segregated, if the union segregates them, assuming they don't rec- for those for whom they don't receive affirmative authorization, they they keep them in escrow indefinitely, or they put them in a uh, in a locked box and never do anything with them. Certainly, the union would 
would satisfy the statute in, in, in that way. But what, what the statute says, as interpreted by the trial court, if then uh, the union uh, uh, puts those funds uh, back into its general treasury, or, or even if it doesn't, and spends them in some way for some purpose, whatever, that it's violating the statute. And the only way that the union can comply is by not only segregating the funds, but then, if affirmative authorization is not received, by rebating a certain portion of the fund to the individual fee payers. And I thought that approach was exactly what we held was required in the Street decision, the International Association Machinists versus Street, so that you can't get around this requirement by saying, oh, well, we'll use the objector's funds for collective bargaining and we'll use the others for that. Sure, exactly. You, and, and, that's, and that's why I think that that uh, interpretation of the, of the statute may be correct. But the problem we have here is this is a statute uh, and why it's unconstitutional is this is a statute that is saying this only with respect to a particular kind of speech. It's saying union may collect uh, 100 percent of dues and it may spend them in whatever way it, it deems appropriate. Uh, Isn't that, doesn't that objection apply whether it's opt-in or opt-out? No, it doesn't, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, because the the uh, in in um, in the street and Abood uh, decisions, uh, the court has has said that there is a, a all has has talked in terms of expenditures that are not germane to collective bargaining. Is it and is it content discrimination which subjects legislation to strict scrutiny? If uh, the government, the federal government, or a state uh, designates certain uh, funds for use by school districts to teach patriotism, American history, something like that, is that subject to strict scrutiny? No, because because this is government funding. This is the okay. government. Okay. Now let's assume it's not government in. funding. Instead of doing that, the government says uh, uh, you will have authority to collect money from certain people only for a particular purpose. Is that content discrimination which calls into play uh, strict scrutiny? I believe it is, Justice Scalia. I don't see why the one is any worse than the other. The government has a particular purpose in mind, mm -hmm. and in one case it gives out money with that purpose in mind, which mm -hmm. discriminates, of course. In the other case, it allows this extraordinary power to exact uh, funds from people, but only for certain purposes. That's not the kind of content discrimination that, uh, that calls strict scrutiny into play, it seems to me. It's, it's strict scrutiny if it's not the government acting as the speaker, and the government is acting it is as the government regulator. acting as, a, as the coercer. It's because of the government that you're allowed to get this money from these non-union well, members. I, I, I don't believe the Court has ever put it quite that way in the, in the government speech cases, the government funding cases. May I ask this question on your over-inclusive or under-inclusive, rather, argument? Supposing the statute uh, was broader and said the union may not use any non-member uh, agency fee collections for any non-germane purpose at all without an affirmative consent, would that solve all the constitutional problems? I think the, I think the problem here uh, — let me, let me say two things in response would to that. Would you tell me yes or no and then explain? Sir, well, the, the answer is yes and no. The answer is if you're yes talking or no. about — Yes or no. Okay. 
It seemed to me, under your, at least insofar as you're arguing under inclusiveness, the answer would have to be that statute would be okay. If, if, if the, if the, if you're, if what you're doing is talking about the, uh, an election statute. No, like I'm talking about a statute that the individuals say, I don't want to spend any more money, give any more money to the union than I absolutely have to. And the legislature decides to protect the right, that right by saying you cannot use uh, agency shop fees for any non-germane purpose. What's wrong with that? That, that uh, uh, Justice Stevens, if, if this is what the state is saying with respect to the public sector employees as to which it has the authority to regulate the agency fee, this is perfectly constitutional. This is the it kind of that me if that's can. perfectly constitutional, this is a fortiori okay. It's not. It's not just a burden on the union, and it gives less protection to the employee. No, it's not. It's a different case for two reasons, Justice Stevens. First of all, because it's content discriminatory. It's not saying. uh, It's. uh, It's not saying you. you, uh, We limit the agency fee to the non-chargeable, the non-germane, or or, or to the purpose that are germane to collective bargaining. Uh, the state can permissibly do that because it's making. Why isn't that a content-based restriction? That, You've got to look at it the, to see the, if it's germane. The, the purposes, the purposes for which the that are being excluded uh, uh, in in that case are a wide variety of different kinds of speech and non-speech activities. Not only political speech, but public relations. Uh, many courts have interpreted organizing activities to be non-germane to collective bargaining. Uh, membership uh, benefits that are not available non-members are put in that category. Uh, donations to charities, uh, international activities. There's a whole variety of union expenditures that the courts have held are not germane to collective bargaining and cannot be charged over a non-member's objection. And a state would be perfectly free, as several states like Pennsylvania and New Mexico have, to say our judgment is that our interest in labor peace does not extend further than in authorizing an agency fee uh, that in- includes purposes germane to collective bargaining. Again, I'm but, just curious below in the opinion, uh, I did notice in footnote 6, which I hadn't taken in, that the Court explicitly says that you did not make any argument about under-inclusiveness and over-inclusiveness in respect to other organizations. Uh, corporations and so forth. Now, did I can't recall, I just don't recall what you're saying now, I take it, yeah. is that the word election, you can't use it for elections, and elections involve candidates and they also involve ballot issues. Yes. And you're saying that the real problem with this statute is that it throws in ballot issues along with candidate elections. There, well, there are two that, problems. There's the con- — I mean, there — But on that first two. one, did they, did they discuss that at some length in the, in the lower court opinion? I don't — The lower recall. court, no, did not discuss the, the — so, so this is really a ground that they haven't considered. What, what, the, what the Washington Supreme Court — Held is that that the stat what what was argued in the Washington Supreme Court generally was that this is a violation of the union's right to g- engage in political uh, advocacy. But this thing and about the, the ballot and, issue is not and the, there. The reason this is a reason. Uh, the, I think the Washington Supreme Court took note of the fact of what the funds were spent on on ballot initiatives solely, not on candidate. That's election. you want us to decide 
that question, and was there another one that you just said there were two reasons? Well, there are two, there are two reasons why, why, why the, the statute fails to constitute a, a compelling government interest are the overbroad extension to ballot propositions, unlike the federal law and any other state law, and secondly, the uh, under-inclusiveness, that this is a statute that is uh, ostensibly uh, intended to protect the integrity of elections by ensuring that uh, the funds that organizations spend for political electoral purposes represent the views of the people from whom those funds were derived. And the, what the state has chosen to regulate to advance that interest is solely people who already have the opportunity to prevent the use of their funds for purposes they disagree with, while not regulating at all other entities. And that's the argument that the State Supreme Court in footnote 6 expressly said you did not raise. I think that would would, uh, be a valid argument if we were attempting to raise an equal protection claim here, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, That's not what we're doing. What we're saying, we we are making an argument based on what the State Supreme Court held, namely that this is a violation of the the union's right to engage in political speech. And this is one of the reasons for it. Granted, that particular justification for the ruling was not argued below, but this is not like we were attempting to argue equal protection, a totally new uh, basis. on what, you, on what you were arguing, you were very careful in your brief to say funds lawfully possessed by the union, as distinguished from what's in a corporate treasury or there is something peculiar about this, and you recognized it by saying we possess them because if the non-member wants it back, the non-member would be entitled. So it's it's not like money in in well, the corporate too. It, it is Justice Ginsburg. If the purpose, this is why the purpose of the statute is so important. If the purpose of the statute is to protect the integrity of elections by ensuring that what organizations spend for political purposes represents the views of those who contributed the money, then it's very much to the point that there are other organizations, for example, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. You you want us to consider this case as if the First Amendment rights of non-union members were not involved? Absolutely, absolutely not, Justice Kennedy. We recognize — That's been your whole argument. Absolutely not. I'm sorry, Justice Kennedy, but that's certainly not what I intend to be saying. We recognize that the non-union members have First Amendment rights. We also recognize that those rights are protected by the Hudson procedures, which the union uses. The non-members have the absolute right to prevent the use of their funds, not only for this kind of electoral speech, but for any kind of political, ideological speech and other non-chargeable activities with which they disagree it's simply by sending in a letter. First Amendment right that is waived by failing to make an, a, a timely objection. Well, it's not that a right is waived. What it, what it well, is, no, it's, Justice Stevens, it's, it's what the right is. The constitutional right is a right against being required to, to, to engage in Which compelled speech. Which no longer speech. exists if you don't make a timely objection. No, you have, you have the right, but that, that would be just like, uh, as the, the Solicitor General 
Mark, if on the, the, the uh, license plate case, uh, someone who receives in the mail the license plate that says live free or die or taxation without representation and puts it on his car is not waiving a constitutional right by It's not exactly the same situation. These are, peop- these are teachers who have chosen not to join the Washington Education Association. Isn't that right? These are teachers who have not joined the Washington Education the record. Uh, isn't it overwhelmingly likely that they, if you, if you spoke to them and you said, would you like to give money to the union to spend on elections, they would say no. I absolutely disagree with you, Justice Alito, because keep in mind, Explain to me the thinking of somebody who chooses not to join, the 5 percent who chooses, who choose not to join, and yet they would like to make this contribution. Now, maybe there's some, but what would be the thinking of such a person? It's not asking them to make a contribution. It's asking them, is it okay with you if your money is used for this purpose? But keep in mind what the money is being used for here. The money is being used. What's the difference between saying, would you like to make a contribution and would you like to allow us to use money that we possess for our purposes rather than returning it to us? What's the difference between those two? Whether there's a difference or not, Justice Alito, the point is the union here is using this money for purposes that it has every reason to believe is in the interest of the vast majority of teachers. Well, well surely they get to make that decision, don't they? they Under don't. this statute, it's their decision the, whether or not. You don't get to say, well, this is in your interest, so whether you'd want to spend the no, money but, or not. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm responding to the suggestion that there should be some kind of presumption that they would would decline to authorize this. That's the, the question you raised, Mr. Chief Justice, is exactly the question before the Court, whether the uh, State can constitutionally can insist that the Union obtain affirmative authorization for this particular type of speech and for no other type of speech. Let me, let me suggest I don't uh, understand the thinking of these hypothetical people. If, if I'm a Union member, I get various benefits. If I choose not to be a union member, I don't get those benefits. Why would I choose to give up the benefits of union membership and yet want to allow the union to spend my money for its political purposes? Well, maybe, Mr. Uh, Justice Alito, if, if you knew that what the union was spending its money for was to improve, uh, to in- increase cost of living uh, adjustments for teachers, or to reduce set class size for teachers, or to uh, enact tax levies is in local school districts. Mr. West, or is there any empirical evidence about what the people who are non-union members, if they had their druggers, would they say not a penny more goes into the union till than we're forced to put there? Is there any empirical evidence that divides up the universe of people who don't who deliberately don't join unions. No, I, uh, Justice Ginsburg, there's a lot of speculation on both sides. I don't think there's any empirical evidence, but there is plenty of reason to think that there are many reasons that people choose not to join the union, whether from a free rider motivation, whether from a uh, uh, just not being a joiner, uh, any variety of reasons. Some you're of them free you- under this system to send them the same sort of materials you send about your pack and say, we do all sorts of good things with the money from people who opt in. You should opt in. Yeah. But, they, but, but you want to do it without giving them that opportunity. Well, the question is uh, uh, whether the state can compel us to uh, 
to, re- to obtain that authorization for this limited type of speech. Only me- if the State has given you the power to exact the money from these people. It certainly has. That changes everything. It, if, it, if, if this was money that they had contributed themselves, you'd have a different argument. But the state compels them to give you that money, and the state says, however, yeah. you will not use this money for this purpose without their consent. It doesn't change everything, Justice Scalia, precisely for the reasons that you uh, discussed, for, in your opinion, for the Court in RAV versus St. Paul, the St. Paul cross-burning case, where you pointed out that, that the, the greater includes the lesser argument does not apply where you have content discrimination, where the, the, the state could, could justifiably uh, ban all symbols and displays that involve fighting words, but it could not single out a particular so that, bring, that brings us back to the question I asked earlier, and I suggested my answer to that. I don't think it's content discrimination of the sort that, that triggers strict scrutiny when, this, when the government gives money for a particular purpose only and not for other purposes. And I also don't think it's content discrimination of the sort that triggers strict scrutiny when the government allows a private organization to, to use governmental power to exact money from people for a particular purpose only. That's, Just that's Scalia, a different Im- ballgame. Imagine, if I may take a little bit starker example, imagine that what the government said in this statute is that the union must obtain affirmative authorization if it is going to use agency fee funds to support Democratic candidates, but not if it's going to support Republican candidates. Obviously, it couldn't do that. That's, I, I, and I see that. And, and that put is a lot of weight on this argument. And, and that, that is, that it goes further than this. That's viewpoint discrimination. But this is content discrimination, and the Court has held in Consolidated, uh, consolidated Edison and a number of other cases that that is also a constitutional problem. What you're saying right now, if it is, is ballots versus candidates under the word election. Exactly. And that has a lot of implications for all kinds of campaign finance law that has nothing to do, I think, with unions. Exactly. And the lower court didn't consider it. And is this open now, if it's going back for other things, such as the state constitution, for them to consider this matter on remand? I think it certainly would be open to them to consider. I, I, I also think it's a, it's a matter that, that when we get to that point, at least, uh, I don't know. Perhaps you don't know what the implication of a decision, say, in your favor here, would have for Vermont's campaign finance law or California's or some other. Uh, perhaps, but it's but it's certainly true that on this, at least on this point of of the, the lack of any compelling uh, justification for restricting entities' contributions and expenditures in support of or opposition to ballot propositions, the law, this Court's law is, is, is fully clear on, on that point. Um, it's our submission, Mr. Ch- Chief Justice, that what you have here is a content-based restriction on WEA's ability to engage in spolit- political speech on issues of educational policy that are of vital importance to the 70,000 teachers that it represents. But could, this, and there, could the state have a restriction uh, requiring affirmative authorization for all union expenditures that fall within um, uh, the, the Abood machinist line of cases? Yes, if this were, as, particularly if this were. If this were across, across the board as to all First Amendment rights that, uh, and 
objecting member has, then the statute would be void. Certainly. Would be valid, rather. Certainly, if, if this were done in the statute that authorized the agency fee in the first place, so it would No, it's clear. done in this statute. If it's done in this statute, uh, the problem that would remain, Justice Kennedy, is this is an election law that presumably has to be justified on the basis of whether it promotes the integrity of, of, of elections. And when, when you have — No, an, no. An, my, my hypothetical is that there's a Washington statute or a Washington constitutional referendum provision, initiative provision, mm-hmm. which says that is to all protected speech for uh, uh, non-union members who have — Money's taken out. There must be affirmative authorization. The, the, the state could do that at least if it limited it to the public sector, where the, it's the, where the state has the authority to authorize the amount of the agency fee. I believe the state could do that. The state could certainly. Some people have talked about the 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 size of the Hudson notice. That, that the state could impose requirements that the notice be clearer, that it be shorter. Uh, the state could could impose that affirmative authorization requirement. The Back state to your limit example the example about the political party saying you can't use it for Democrats or Republicans. What if they said, as they might have in the 1940s, you can use it for anybody except communist candidates? Well, I think that would be a problem too, and and that's uh, <laughs> be okay. I guess that would that uh, that would be viewpoint discriminatory. Uh, but here we have a pro, uh, a, a, a a legislative. Uh, a, a statute that, that is content discriminatory that can't be justified uh, as a uh, compelling state interest to promote the integrity of elections, and we believe the judgment of the Washington Supreme Court should be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. West. Uh, General McKenna, you have seven minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, thank you. First of all, I wanted to get back to a question raised by Justice Breyer concerning whether they get their money back. I took your question to refer to a hypothetical, but allow me to address the real circumstances in this case by referring to the Joint Appendix at 210-212. These are the pages covering the permanent injunction uh, that was entered by the trial court. Under that permanent injunction, it's, uh, the WEA shall return to all agency fee payers who have not affirmatively authorized the use of their fees for expenditures, um, and it lays out the means of doing that. For the first two years, there's, a, there's an agreed-upon amount. For the, uh, for the next three years of the injunction, there's another amount. But they do get their money back under that injunction. Uh, referring to uh, the issue of, of, of whether they waive or not under the current process used by the WEA, uh, referring to JA 198, which is the letter sent out on September 15, 2000, by the WEA to the non-members, you'll note the statement, quote, if such written objection has not been postmarked by October 16, 2000, you will waive your ability to object. The State of Washington's position is that non-members should not be required to say no twice. They said no when they chose not to join the union. The union's position now is, well, we get to use your money for political purposes unless you say no a second time. That does not seem to be a reasonable default position uh, to take, and certainly we but believe the state, the state of Washington seems to think that's fine for everything other than election expenses. Yes, Your Honor. In terms of Section 760, the state of Washington does think that's fine because of the purpose of the statute and the purpose of Section 760, the purpose being to protect the integrity of elections by me- several different means involving protecting individuals. Well, do you individuals. think an underlying constitutional problem is the non-election expenditures, that there's still political expenditures? We don't take a position on whether there's a constitutional problem with regard to non-germane expenditures, Your Honor. But we do believe — didn't we take one in Abood? 
I'm sorry. Didn't we take a position in our booth? I, what I meant was — I would suppose on the way this statute works, you have to opt in for uh, the election expenditures, but you have to have a right to opt out for others yes. non-germane. Your Honor, Chief Justice is correct. Of course, what I, what I thought the question was about was the, the uh, question of whether or not all, op- all non-germane expenses must be opt-in. Uh, must be provided opt that, That's all I meant. What you're absolutely correct, of course, in your decisions, opt-out is satisfactory. And we're, we're not saying that opt-out is not satisfactory here as far as the state's position is concerned. But what we are saying is that the state has a right to impose this additional requirement of affirmative authorization. What, what do you say about his hypothetical involving Democrats versus Republicans? Well, Your Honor, that would uh, certainly seem to be viewpoint discrimination, and it would implicate — And he says, well, this is content discrimination. What's, is that — we, Your Honor, we do not agree that this is content, content discrimination. Uh, this is uh, content neutral. 760 establishes a procedure. Uh, that is to say, a requirement that must be met before the money well, may it's be content used. in the sense that only some speech has, has, has to be affirmatively authorized. Yes, Your Honor, that, that additional affirmative authorization does apply to this category of speech, influencing an election operating a political yeah. committee. Uh, but we don't believe that it is uh, problematic constitutionally any more than the argument of taxpayers with representations in the Regan case was, where they argued that they had a constitutional right to receive tax-deductible uh, contributions and use them for lobbying. The Court found to the contrary. And indeed, Initiative 134 is about protecting individuals. It's about protecting individuals in Section 760. It's, it says in the intent Can I section. I just go back to the, make sure yes, my sir. question. Your point of, your answer to his hypothetical is, well, the viewpoint discrimination would be impermissible, but the content discrimination is permissible. If it is content discrimination, Your Honor, we believe it is permissible, yes, sir. And if it were viewpoint, if in the hypothetical, if there were viewpoint discrimination, that would not implicate any constitutional right of the union, but it may very well implicate the Southworth interests of the non-member fee payers. Is it, is it content? I mean, it doesn't say which way you're trying to influence the election. We don't believe it is content-based, Your Honor. As I said, we, you know, we don't believe it is, because it's any well, election of any time. Content means category of speech as opposed to what is the political position you're taking. Yes, that is, it only regard, is in regard to uh, influencing elections or operating a political committee, which is a second. But I thought that that's what was content. You could do it, say, it, in the but press, it, but you couldn't do it over the air. That's my understanding, too. It's I think content. you've got to get out of it some other way. I mean, you've got to say it's content, but it doesn't apply when it's the government contributing money, or it doesn't apply when you're applying it to, to money that's being coerced by the government. Yes, Your Honor. I would if that's that. yes, then what the con- category here is election speech. If you're going to call a statute that treats election speech specially, then all campaign finance regulation would fall in that category. And if you're going to use that distinction to say strict scrutiny applies, then strict scrutiny would apply to all campaign finance regulation. And a good the court has too. never, to my knowledge, applied strict scrutiny to campaign finance regulation because there are speech interests on both sides of the equation. Yes, Your Honor. Of course, we believe that I'm glad you said yes to me because that implies a no to the last. We, 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 <laughs> yes, Your Honor. I understand your question. And <laughs> we believe that of we believe, of course, that Section 760 is not subject to strict scrutiny. It is subject at most to rational basis. And it, clearly there is a rational basis for the State in this case to require the affirmative authorization of non-member fee pairs. Could you get to the point you were about to make, uh, what the purpose of the thing is, you said? That- well, yes, Your Honor. 
Your Honor, uh, the, the Supreme Court of Washington found a purpose of the entire law, Initiative 134, right. to be to protect election integrity. Right. But 760 is, is one means of achieving that purpose, by means of protecting individual interests. Similarly, Section 680 of this law, which I apologize is not in the Joint Appendix, but it's RCW 4217-680, which requires positive checkoff before an employer may deduct PAC contributions for any employee. It's may, may I just, I'm sorry, may I sorry. just take you back to the point of, of the objective being the protection of election integrity? As I understand it, so far as the protection of election integrity is concerned, with respect to these contributions, that is simply the obverse size or the flip side, if you will, of protecting uh, the, uh, the, the right of the dissenting union member or the non-joint, I'm trying to strike that, yes. the non-union worker, uh, to control the use of, of, of the funds uh, that would be used for, for the, the, the political purposes. Uh, the one is simply the obverse of the other. Do you yes. agree? Yes, Your Honor. We believe so there are two by, sides of by, the same by, coin. By yes. articulating that, per, the, the election integrity is a purpose, the Washington Supreme Court should not be understood as excluding the protection of uh, the non-member workers' interests. Yes, Your Honor, I would agree. Thank you. Thank you, General. The case is submitted.